So, so this is one of my earlier business. I was in real estate and um, we had communities we were building, uh, millions and millions of different assets out there that we had in our control. Well, 2007, the real estate market crashed. Banking, you know, changed, real estate changed. Uh, we all, you know, everything I had was tied to real estate. I had a construction company, a uh, real estate investment company, a training organization, uh, and a mortgage company and a financing company, all tied to real estate. Well, within six months, everything disappeared. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. You're joining your two favorite co-hosts, as always. I'm Adam, and Chloe is here with us as well. And today, we'll be welcoming Abraham Zong, president of Government Contractors Association and co-founder of Blockchain Chamber of Commerce. Abraham is a small business advocate with a distinct entrepreneurial drive, and we are so excited to have him on the show. Thank you for joining us today, Abraham. It is an honor to have you uh, with us today. Hey, Adam and Chloe. Hey, it's an honor for me to be a guest here. So thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you so much, Abe. I was, uh, before we started the show, for all of our listeners, I was telling Adam how much I admire Abe and all of the work that he does in the community, particularly with helping small businesses figure out the government space and landscape and how to properly prepare your business to scale and to grow. And I love that he really, really helps the underserved suppliers really kind of navigate that space. Um, just admirable. And that's a critical area, right? Because I've noticed in, in my view of supplier diversity from the corporate side, it seems that a lot of small businesses get their start on government contracts. That's kind of mm. where they first get the wind beneath their wings, if you will. So a very important space uh, for developing and growing scale uh, for many of our small businesses. That's fantastic work. Well, it's one of the largest uh, buyer of anything. And so, uh, and small businesses are getting the least amount of opportunities out there. So yeah, so I love uh, doing what I get to do. Yeah, Abe, so tell us a little bit about how you, you know, your your purpose for doing this and how yeah. you got into becoming this government contracting expert. Uh, sometime, you know, I look at it, maybe it is by chance, maybe it is divine. Uh, it doesn't matter, but I'm here, right? So, so I, I uh, immigrated here from uh, Laos um, as a refugee escaping the communist regime that took over the country. Coming to America was quite an adventure. And uh, we were, you know, were, my parents were the first generation to make contact with the world. So we were about to land in Ohio, and this is, we've never seen the war before. And so we're a jungle tribe from this small little country and I looked out the window, and as a young kid, I, I looked out the window, and I said, goodness, we're going to die in America. It's a <laughs> land of white desert from horizon to horizon. It's just white sand everywhere. Mm. And people laughed at us. And I said, look out the window. It's, it's white sand everywhere. And they said, that stuff is called snow. And <laughs> oh. snow before. we don't have a word wow. for snow in my language, right? Oh, so so wow. it, it was quite a cultural shock. Uh, environmental shock, language shock, you name it, we experienced it. But what I 
Well, I realized that there's a lot of changes, a lot of different things out there. And I fell in love with, with you know, my new adoptive home, the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, wow, you know what? I can be anything I want to be in this country. Mm-hmm. So from a young age, I got into entrepreneurship. I started my first business uh, when I was about 19, 20 years old. It was a um, comic book baseball car shop. And nice. It, it was a lot of fun. And, that, you know, we had uh, Michael Jordan rookie card, a Mickey Mantle rookie card, uh, Willie Mays rookie card, uh, all these fun stuff. And, and then, you know, and, and, but sometimes you do things because you think you're good at it and, and mm-hmm. you just know to do it. Mm-hmm. But it took a while for me to really find my purpose. Mm-hmm. I was, um, when I had my earlier businesses, um, I had a, you know, I, so that business went overseas, did missionary work, came back to the U.S., tried Corporate America for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. I lasted five months in Corporate America. So, <laughs> so all, all of you out there who has made your career in Corporate America, that's awesome because it, there's a place for everybody, right? For right. me, my place was in Corporate America and my place was the entrepreneurship world. So I thought, you know what, I need to go out there and start another business and had $300 in my name because, you know, we immigrated here with, when we got to the United States, my parents had $20 in their pocket. Wow. So, so we came with nothing. Wow. And, um, and so when I was ready to, to start my next business, I, I had $300. So it's a, little, it's a little bit better than $20. There you uh, go. Yep. And so people ask me, how do you start a business with $300? And I said, you know, business is not about money. Business mm-hmm. is a money is a byproduct, but business is really just about people. It's about relationships. Yeah, it is. And so I, I went out there, took three hundred dollars, and I knew that if I can find people that have a problem, mm-hmm. and I can find people that have a solution, and I'm the person that connects the problem and the solution together, I can make money. And that's mm-hmm. really the essence of how I started my business with three hundred dollars, and I grew that business. But while wow. I was doing the office furniture business, I always, always did ministry work. So I did ministry work in, in, in church and so forth. And, but that wasn't my calling and that wasn't my purpose. And, and, and so when you're talking about what is your purpose, I, I, I did business, but I also did clergy ministry work because I thought that that was my purpose. Mm-hmm. And it took me about until I was 33 34 years old, when I start realizing, you know what, what is my real purpose here? What, what's my gifts, right? Yeah. And, and the way I look at this here is I'm given, each one of us has different talents. And, sure. and uh, we look at talents in terms of, uh, from a, uh, you know, a ministry perspective, I look at talents as, you know, do you have 10 talents, five talents, or one talent, right? And, and, I, and I thought, you know, I'm two talents, maybe three talents when it comes to ministry work, but I'm 10 talents when it comes to entrepreneurship. So why am I doing clergy work? Not that that's not important, but maybe somebody has 10 talents in that area. Mm-hmm. And so I need to live out what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I discovered uh, what, you know, what I need to do is mm-hmm. wrestling through not necessarily what people thought I should do or what, uh, what I felt that I felt guilty because I didn't really understand my gifts mm. and I did it um, because I thought, you know, maybe I should do good in that way. 
Mm-hmm. But when I discovered that I can do good with my talents and my gifts, that's kind of how I got to where I'm in today. That's amazing. Love that. And I love that statement. Money is a byproduct of business. I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting mindset to put yourself in. Yes. Um, and I can see where it's almost freeing, right? So if, if you're driven by, I've got to make profit, got to make profit, got to make profit. But if you stop and go, no, you know what? Business is really more about people. And I have to tell you, I, Abe, I agree with that because uh, a lot of time when I'm talking to small business owners, everybody's providing, you know, if I'm looking at a certain commodity, the commodity is the same, the services are the same, but it's the relationship, right? Who do I feel like if you have a contract with my firm that if an issue arises or I have a problem, I know I can pick up the phone. Abe is, if he doesn't pick up the phone because he sees me, he's calling me back in five to 10 minutes. And when I present my problem, I'm going to have a solution in another five to 10 minutes. It's, you're right. It's all about relationship. Money follows that. And I, I think that is an awesome mantra to have as a small business owner. Yeah. And, and I've lived by that there. Uh, and sometimes you, you take the short end of the stick, you, 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 you serve people first mm-hmm. and good things will, will happen after that. Right. And see, yeah. that's, that's amazing, right? And that's why I got into supplier diversity still inside corporate America, because when I negotiated contracts with other big firms, nobody cared. Nobody cared. If, you know, they were trying to make sure you got the shorter in the stick, right? So it was a, it was a job of <laughs> make sure who sticks longer than the other one. That can go in a really weird space. But when I got into supplier diversity, the conversation changed, right? The conversation was this. It's like, how can I help you succeed? And if I help you succeed, I succeed. And it's a totally different conversation. It's a way, it's a much more invigorating way to hold a negotiation. So I absolutely love it when I hear uh, my small business owners talk this way. Yeah. What I realize is this, sir, if, if, if I'm in a relationship with somebody and it's a win for me and a lose for them, we'll never do business again. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. If it's a win for them and maybe a win for me, we'll do business again. Or maybe if it's just a win for them and maybe I didn't win in that ex- exchange there, but they will come back and I will win at, at the next transaction. Exactly. That's an amazing mindset. So Abe, so tell us a little bit about, you know, the mission of the Government Contractors Association and really how it benefits the community. Yeah, so I've started, um, and, and Chloe, you know, you, when people talk about serial entrepreneurship, I've started probably about, uh, <laughs> I lose count, but, you know, but, but my best estimate is about 28 companies. Oh, wow. Uh, most of them have failed. Uh, many, you know, some have succeeded. I've sold two companies. Yeah. Uh, at any given time, I'm building one main organization, but I, I have two or three other part-time organizations that I'm fostering or building or, be, uh, or I'm a part of. Uh, and so currently I have a few companies that's run by other people, but I'm a stakeholder in it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have the main organization that I'm supporting is the Government Contract Association because that's where I really get to live out my talents that way. Right. Using all my years of business experiences there. But, my, but the mission of GCA is really core to my own personal mission. And at, at some point, I have to define my own mission. Because if I don't have my own personal mission, then it's hard to define a mission for my organization. Right. So I think back to one of my heroes, the late Congressman uh, John Lewis. And he said that we have to stand in the way of injustice. Mm-hmm. And there is a economic injustice that's going on in the government contracting world. Mm. Large companies are winning about 80% of all the contracting dollars. Small businesses are winning about 20%. And so when you, so when you look at this here, it, it's a 
great disparity between the large companies and small businesses, even though the SBA defines small businesses as representing 99.7% of all the companies in the U.S. Because their definition of small is different, right? Mm -hmm. Like for a construction company, 35 million or less. Even with that very loose definition of small businesses, small businesses are only still winning about 20%. So I thought, you know what? Some, somebody's got to do something about that. And mm -hmm. when I was doing consulting work in the government space, I kept on thinking that somebody was the next person beside me or, or you know, somebody down the street or somebody in another country, another state, somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but then at some point, I kept on looking at myself in the mirror. I said, you know, I have the skill set. I know the space here. Right. I, I love the space here. Maybe that someone is me. Yes. And so as I reflected on Congressman John Lewis, uh, and I said, you know, there, there is an injustice here, and maybe that somebody is me. Because I looked at specifically, uh, this is back in 2008 when I really decided to immerse myself into the government space full-time. Women-owned businesses were winning 1.6% of contracting dollars. Mm, and wow. it breaks my heart to even say that because, sure. you know, women entrepreneurs represent 41% of the companies in the United States based on Business Week stats. And, and, but they're only winning 1.6% of contracting dollars. And I thought, who's going to stand for my mother? Who's going to be that voice for my sister? Who's going to be that voice for my wife, for my, my daughter, my aunts out there? Yeah. And, and at some point, you know, that, that person is you. And, 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 and I thought, okay, I have to do this here. So that's kind of how GC got started. It was out of my own... Uh, I saw the challenges, saw the need, and I said, you know, I have to form this organization so that we can really bring about true changes, uh, and, and not just uh, a dog and pony show, but really practical, uh, meaningful changes uh, to the small business community, and so that's kind of how we got here. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm going to go off script on you for just a second, Abe, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a very interesting stat. Uh, women-owned businesses, about 41% of the total mix, only one point something winning government contracts. Now, yeah. it's my experience when I'm talking to women entrepreneurs, most of the companies that they own are what I'm going to consider retail goods, mm. right? I had a great conversation with a young lady yesterday, and her business is sustainable wrapping paper. And I'm sitting there going, mm, I kind of represent a financial institution. So I'm trying, you know, I'm struggling mm to make the connection. So whereas I agree in theory that uh, a Weeby is probably not being as represented as they should inside a inside the governmental space, what are you seeing in the way of like product mix? And I think that's mm -hmm. some of the myths that we have. And, and there's some data out there uh, on all of this. And we kind of just conglomerate it together and we say, all Weebies do this. But then when you actually look at the commodities inside that group, they're retail. I don't know too many uh, federal bureaus that are buying wrapping paper right now. I could be extremely wrong. And if I am, I'm so sorry, please correct me. But how do you work with that? And how do you coach uh, a, a budding entrepreneur? It's like, I want to win government contracts, but they come to you and go, hi, I sell wrapping paper. Yeah, that's a great point, Adam. Uh, you know, since uh, 2008, uh, you right. know, they, they created women program, you know, cert mm -hmm. certification program for women made it stronger. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we've come a few steps further. So we're at about 4% of contracting dollars, federal contracting dollars going to women-owned businesses. 
-hmm. but many that come from the retail community or from their small business and they do one thing. And, and so the way I, I help them is, you know, I tell them C point number one, right? Business is not mm -hmm. about product. It's not about right. service. It's about people. Mm -hmm. and, and so people, the government is, yes, it's an agency, but they're people. They have problems. Right. And so right. Yeah, so when I'm problems. working, yeah, when I'm working with a small business owner, uh, I would talk to, to, to her. I say, okay, let me understand what you do. Mm -hmm. And she would say, I do this, I do that. Uh, like, let me give you a very specific example. Well, let me finish the thought process and I'll give you okay. a specific And we'll come example. back to the example, sure. Yeah. So, so, so what I do is I help them to understand you have a starting point, but mm -hmm. the government buys, if you're selling wrapping paper, mm -hmm. the government buys other type of paper. So mm -hmm. instead of just selling wrapping paper, you can sell them paper goods. You can sell them mm -hmm. a paper plates. You can sell them, you, you know, paper, right. um, paper cups. You can sell them paper forks because now they're using. Uh, right, you know, to get away from the plastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, correct. So, 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 so you can expand from what they're doing to other things. And, and, and so that. that's really, you know, because so if you understand, mm -hmm. yeah, if you understand the challenges that the government has, mm -hmm. they buy other things similar to that. You start off with what they're good at, but then you expand it to other areas. Yeah. yeah. You know, Abe, the other thing I was thinking about too, and I'm just going to, well, let's just spitball an idea real fast. I'd love to get your take on this, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I sat there with this saying, we're, we're going to keep our wrapping paper lady because she seems to be <laughs> the, the object du jour on today's show. Um, and I'm sitting there going, I'm like, I don't wrap money, you know? So I'm trying to figure it out. I love what you said about the paper plates. But what I was, the other thing I was thinking is, you know, a lot of us in corporate America, we don't have time to take a breath sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Or go buy wrapping paper for our sons, daughters, mothers, grandmothers, whatever special occasions out there. And my thought was like, why don't, why don't corporations have their own Amazon, right? Their own Amazon style service inside their, you know, inside their employee portal where if I need wrapping paper, I'm like, oh no, I need it like tomorrow. I could order that from the company store. You know, I don't mm -hmm. even always need to buy a company logo pin. But boy, I sure could use wrapping paper or a gift or a card and have some of these, uh, you know, minority and diverse providers that are providing retail products populate the company store. I just thought that yeah. might be an interesting tailspin study for some of us in corporate America. I mean, thoughts? I just I'm just throwing it out there now. I just had a, that crazy idea the other day. I yeah. like the idea. What do you think, Chloe? I love that idea. Thank you. I mean, I think Amazon has kind of done that already, you know, to yep. a certain degree. So it's like setting up an account and being able to do that on the business side, which looks very different from the consumer side. It um, does, but you don't get to count the spend. See, that's what it comes back to in corporate America, right? It comes back to counting the spend. So yeah. if it's my store and I'm contracting with that MBE, even through a portal, say like higher ground, Yes. Then I can count the spend, either tier one or tier two. Right. If I go through Amazon. You can't. Mm, can't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's genius. I think it's genius because that number just keeps going up as employees go to the store. So exactly. it's a great way to continue to meet your numbers and support the small local communities that are. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's part of the core mission of a lot of these organizations. So it sounds like we need to add a shopping cart uh, to the higher ground platform. Absolutely. Bingo. That's Absolutely. exactly right. Eh? <laughs> we definitely do. We definitely do.
Abe, can you talk to us a little bit about just the overall benefits? You know, a lot of our listeners, majority of them are, you know, do business with corporations yep. and are also supplier diversity professionals, but talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the benefits of small businesses growing in the government sector. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of good reasons. Uh, one is the government is the one of the largest purchasers of goods and services in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spend on average, you know, about uh, $550 billion every single year. So oh. you're talking about a lot of goods. I, if, say, if, I wish I had their purchasing power. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's right. Man. And, and if they need more money, guess what they can do? They can print it. More money. it. Yes. They, yeah. can, they, they literally can, can shake the money tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can borrow. They can do many things, right? Yep. Yes. So, 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 so that's the first premise of why any entrepreneurs who have a business, it doesn't matter, product, service, you should consider the government, specifically the federal government, as a first, one of your first go-to marketplace. Mm-hmm. Now, some specific practicals with that is this here. The, because of the disparity that exists in the government space, uh, the federal government through Congress created special certification programs uh, targeting small businesses. So, for example, yeah. there's the, uh, the 8A uh, small business program, certification program. There's the women-owned, the EDWSB, the WSB. There's the veteran programs, the SDVSB, VOSB, yeah. uh, the Hub Zone program. Lots of different federal programs out there. Um, and then, Adam, I don't know if you know this one. Have you heard of the Section 3 program? No, that's a new one. I was, I was, uh-huh. I was good right up till Section 3. I'm ready to hear about this one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so some people have heard of Section 8. Section 8 is a program with HUD, mm-hmm. which is a housing voucher program. Right. What HUD has a program, entrepreneurship small business program called Section 3. Okay. And it's designed to help small businesses work and get contracts with HUD. So mm. lots of different programs like that. So, so if a business owner is a, if you're in construction, landscaping, if you do mm-hmm. administrative management, you do asset management, real estate, an attorney, a uh, real estate uh, attorney, a uh, closing attorney, anybody that can touch, um, you know, HUD or, mm-hmm. or sees that HUD has a need for them, they need to consider the Section 3 program. Mm-hmm. So there's lots mm-hmm. of these different programs out there. But the, the key premise to this here is that it's a federal mandated uh, program, and they in, they've instructed the SBA to ensure that these uh, set-aside goals are met. And so from a federal general perspective, 23% of all federal spending are set aside for small businesses. Mm-hmm. And then within that 23%, there's other micro segments, like for example, women-owned businesses, uh, the mandate or the goal is 5% to women-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, for hub zone, uh, which is historically underutilized business zones, which are businesses that are located headquartered in an area of town that have uh, lower income. Mm-hmm. And if they have 35% of their employees that live in a hub zone, then they can qualify for that program. That's a 3% set-aside program. Now, 3% may seem like low, but 3% of $550 billion. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of money. Yes, so, it is. So in fact, that amount, the country where I'm from, Laos, uh, the GDP of Laos is about $16 billion. Oh, so, wow. the, so the hub zone program is, is an enormous amount of money. It, it's e- equal to about the GDP of the, of the country uh, where wow. I'm from. So, 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 you, so we're talking about a lot of money. In, and, so, and then you have all these different, different certification groups. Now, where this is different 
from the commercial uh, diverse supply diversity program or state and local um, contracting program for small businesses. I recommend for most companies to start at the federal level mm-hmm. uh, because these are goals that are tracked and that's reported. The SBA manages most of these programs and they report that back to Congress and, mm-hmm. and Congress holds these different agencies uh, well, they actually hold the SBA uh, accountable. SBA holds these agencies accountable. And we as citizens hold our congressmen uh, accountable. And so mm-hmm. if goals are not met, there's actually repercussions. Whereas mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. DBE program with the state, uh, most state has a DBE certification program. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, generally, that's a 10% set aside, but, but there's no real accountability behind it. Yeah, the SBA mm-hmm. does not oversee mm-hmm. that. Um, and so that's good to know. Yeah, you know, and so yeah. supply diversity, uh, it's internal to the company itself. If they don't meet their, their own goals, they're just like, oh, we'll do better next year. There's not another layer, multiple multiple layers of accountability. So 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 one of the first benefits is focus on federal and use your small business status. That piece of paper open doors for you. Having a certification does not guarantee you're going to be million million dollar corporation. <laughs> right. It's it just it's just a you know it's just a piece of paper that opens doors for you. Just like having a you don't need a high school degree to be successful in life, but if you have one, it, it gives you a better chance. You don't right. need a four years degree to be successful in life, but if you have one, it opens up more doors. You don't need a master's right. or a PhD, but if you have those, it opens up more doors. So so right. any business yeah. can be successful in the government market, but if you have an eight A certification. Ooh, wow, that's powerful because now you can nice. win a sole source contracts. And a sole source contract, you don't have to bid against anybody. It's a direct award and is based purely on my first point today, relationships. Yeah. If somebody knows you, like you, trust you, they can award you a contract up to $4 million at the federal level without competing. Nice. Mm, nice. That's great. Those are great you benefits. definitely don't see that yeah, on the no, private sector side. No, no you not don't. at that level <laughs> at all. So what challenges do you see, particularly now that we're sort of in this post-COVID? I don't even know if we're post-COVID, but you know, what what challenges do you see that a lot of these small business owners are facing, you know, right now? And and how are you suggesting or how are they overcoming them? Yeah, I think the uh, the immediate challenges as it relates to COVID specifically, and I've talked about some general things also, mm-hmm. uh, but COVID, you know. You know, because it is a uh, relationship-driven type of, of um, you, know, you know, entrepreneurship is that. And mm-hmm. it's just harder to build relationships. Uh, Yo, to start off, it's, it's hard to start off in the first place because mm-hmm. uh, businesses going from the commercial world to the government world, they don't, they don't speak the language. I call it governese. It's yeah. a foreign language. It and is. They don't speak governese. First, they have to learn how to speak governese. So, so that's, uh, that's challenging. What? Yeah, right. So, I know so it was Mandarin, but that's about as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> right, right. It, it's, a, it's a foreign language. And so Governance right. is like that. And I said in my native language, the uh, Hmong, that... Uh, that if you know, we're talking about government contracting today, if you're a small business owner, uh, raise your hand, I'm going to give you a social source contract. Mm-hmm. So, but if you don't know to raise your hand, 
then you don't know, you know, what they're saying and so forth. Right. So the first thing is you got to learn how to speak the, the language. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I help them to understand uh, this contracting world by uh, the, the acronyms, right? Mm-hmm. The, the jargon, oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes. all of these different things. That's just part of it. Uh, yeah. and, and then once they overcome that, uh, because of COVID, they can't go build a relationship. So, mm-hmm. so they have to learn. Contracting officers are uh, not always going to meet with you based on the terms that you're, you're familiar with. Right. So you have to be creative in terms of how you engage a contracting officer. And, yeah. and sometimes you can't go directly to a contracting officer. You have to go to the small business uh, specialist, or sometimes they're called the OSTABU, the, the mm-hmm. SABU, the Office of Small Business Program. Every agency has a small business program uh, and someone running that and, and yeah. people that work in that small business program. And then you go to them and then they will connect you to the contracting officers, to the program managers, to the directors and agency heads and so forth. So, so, so knowing how to speak the language is the first uh, mm-hmm. thing that, you know, entrepreneurs need to overcome. Yeah, that's so nice. important. So, so, so important. Learning, learning the language, I think is one. And then, and then mm-hmm. also just, you know, not being afraid to, to take risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, obviously all the businesses that you've started right. and successfully ran and sold and now helping other ones talk about how po- important risk-taking is and being confident in yourself. Yeah. Um, risk. I'm actually uh, scripting out a book called risk and grow rich. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I, love I like it. that. I like the title a lot. <laughs> I love that. Yes. So, so it's a, it's, it's the next iteration of think and grow rich, right? Think mm-hmm. means you got to have the vision. You got to have a game plan. You got to, it starts with that. But then the next step is action and action is about risk. And, and so f- from my perspective, uh, the moment we wake up every day, we're taking risk, whether we realize it or not. We, we, yeah. we, we get in a car to drive to the office. We're risking, we're taking a risk. We're making a very calculated risk because you know, along the way, some people won't, won't get to the office. Just that's just part of life. Yeah. Right. You get into an airplane, you're taking risks. You, you get on yes. a phone call, uh, you make a sales call with somebody, you're taking risks. They may say, I'm not interested in your service. They, they, will, they will turn you down. They, will, they may even say nasty things to you over the phone. So mm-hmm. all of those things are, are true. Uh, but risk to me is... Uh, making uh, it's learning decisions. So I see risk as, uh, I I equate it back to my own spiritual journey where risk is like uh, taking steps of faith. You Mm. don't always know what the answer will be. You don't always know exactly how it's gonna happen. And, 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 you know, faith is walking into the darkness knowing that there's light at the other side. Mm, Uh, Yeah. You don't see the light. Beautifully put. Yeah. And, and so risk in entrepreneurship is like taking a step into, into business, knowing that there will be a profit at the end of the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the light in terms of, you know, from entrepreneurship perspective, you don't know. Um, right. and, and so you just have to step out there. And, and uh, let me share an s- example of, of one of the greatest risks um, uh, that I took in, in, in entrepreneurship and in business. So, so this is one of my earlier business. I was in real estate and um, we had communities we were building, uh, millions and millions of different assets out there that we had in our control. 
well, 2007, the real estate market crashed. Banking, you know, changed. Real estate changed. Uh, we all, you know, everything I had was tied to real estate. I had a construction company, a uh, real estate investment company, a training organization, uh, and a mortgage company and a financing company, all tied to real estate. Well, within six months, everything disappeared. Oh, yeah. We had, we had all these properties out there, and yep. we had buyers wanting to buy it, but the banks were lending anymore. So we couldn't liquidate our assets and our money back out. No. So we got to the point where my, my business partner had to go find work. Uh, everyone had to leave. Properties were in foreclosure. We did everything we can to protect our investors, to protect our investment. Uh, and in fact, we were paying our investors' investment and not paying our own properties because we want to make sure that we can say we did everything to support our investors. Um, at the end of the day, you know, not just us, but many, many people lost during that time there. Well, in the middle of that loss, uh, there's a lot of tears. Um, our, one of our car is paid for, so we have one car left. The second car, uh, the repo man came and took it. Our, all of our investment property, most of it was gone. Uh, there's like two or three properties that we paid. It was paid off, and so we had that left. But we couldn't liquidate it, can't get the money back out. And then our personal home was in for pre-foreclosure. And so in the middle of all this, I thought, you know, what do I do? And I said, you know, if, if the Lord started the Vietnam War to bring this person, to bring me from Laos to America, by George, he is shutting down the whole real estate industry, the whole mortgage industry, because he wants me to move on to something else, something yes. better. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what something better was? Yes. And, so, so I look at it from that perspective. And then, uh, but that, the specific risk that I had to take was this here. I didn't know what to do, but I decided that I was going to keep my office space. Now, okay. I didn't have money to pay for office space. Mm -hmm. So I, I went and talked to the property owners. Uh, it was about almost $2,000 a month for that, uh, for the office mm -hmm. space. And I said, hey, let me stay in my office space. And she said, well, I can't let you stay for free. And I said, yeah, but I understand your business. I'm an entrepreneur, so I understand that. But let me stay for what I can pay. And now this is the, this is, uh, oh. the spirit speaking for me, right? Because I can pay right. zero. Because I can't even pay my car. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But the spirit spoke for me. The spirit said, well, uh, tell her that, you know, sometimes you don't hear a voice, but you just say whatever, you know, you just follow the lead of, of, of the guidance of the spirit. And the spirit said, you know, tell her you can, you know, let you stay for what you can pay. So secretly, I was hoping she would say no. But she <laughs> said, you said, okay, well, how much can you pay? Yeah. And I said, uh, again, it wasn't me. The spirit said $500. I didn't have $500. Mm -hmm. She said, yes, to $500. So nice. now I'm thinking like, how am I going to pay $500? I right. don't have a business anymore. All my investments are gone. Uh, I can't repay my car note, can't pay my mortgage note. How am I going to come with $500? Yeah. But sometimes when you listen to the spirit, mm -hmm. the answers come, right? This is about risk-taking. The answers come right. later. Right. So by, by making that commitment, I said, well, how am I going to come up with $500? She agreed to it, so now I have to figure out. So, so I took out my flip phone. Back then was a flip phone. Nice. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know I, know, I know a lot of people who are entrepreneurs working from their home. 
and I hit the little arrow because it's not like smartphone today where you can just jump to where you want to go. I hit the little down arrow, down, 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 and I called a few people, and I found two, two guys, and I said, hey, you're working from home. Man, wouldn't you like to work in a nice, beautiful office? You get your own private office. You get a training room, a conference room, and, uh, and, and a, all these extra space and a real office to come into. They said, wow, that sounds really interesting. They said, how much? I said, 250. So nice. I found two guys, 250. And that's how I got into an office space. I couldn't pay for it, but somebody else paid for it. And that's how I was able to rebuild. But, but how that led to what I was supposed to do next was by keeping that office space. I walk into the office one day, a, a friend of mine, because I didn't have a business. I just come to, when, when everything is gone and you have nothing, you have to do, you have to get up every day and do the fundamentals. You have to get up every day and do what you need, you need to do, which is don't stay in bed and feel sorry for yourself. Don't let the TV become your best friend. Uh, and, and God forbid, don't let the fridge become your best of all friends. Yes. <laughs> and so I woke up every day, came to an empty office, didn't, didn't have anything to do, but I knew that I had to get out or I would, I would start feeling sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. So, so I walk into the office one day, somebody was in the conference room and a friend was having a meeting with a stranger. And I thought I was just going to be nice, go say hi, go back to my office and do mm-hmm. nothing. And so I walked in, I said, hey, just want to say hi. They say, hey. Uh, and the guy said, oh, who are you? I told him you know, that you know, this is my office and you know, came, I was coming to the office. He said, well, what do you do? I started telling him that you know, I'm an entrepreneur in, in transition. <laughs> uh, and I so, so I said, well, what do you do? So we start, we start having this conversation. Well, a, a 30 second conversation, I thought I was just going to say hi and bye and leave turned out to be a three hour conversation. And he, so when I, I asked him what he did, he said, well, I am a uh, former military. I spent 22 years in the, in the government space. Uh, 11 of those years, he was a contracting officer. He's awarded over $5 billion in government contracts. And he said that he wanted to start a consulting company to help businesses understand government contracting. And that's how I got to government space. By taking that risk, I met this stranger and he said, you know, hey, we need to do something together. He said he's never had a business. He, he understood procurement, but now I know all these, I have all these years of business experience. He said, we should do something together. That's how I got into the government space. Mm. That's incredible. Yes. Just stepping out there and trusting your instincts and just talking to people. Like you said, I'll go back to your original point, like relationships. It's all about relationships and just taking a second. I think as entrepreneurs, we can sometimes get so caught up in the day to day and running our business and just running from thing to thing to thing and not fully being present in the moment that, you know, there may be opportunities that that God is just putting right in front of you, but you're exactly. just so busy that you can't even see it. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, Abe, I know that you are, um, you know, I know a little bit of personal background with you and I would love for you to just share just a little bit on the personal side um, because I just feel, I just love your story. And I think that it also sort of weaves into your purpose as well. And I'd love to just kind of let our listeners in to all that is that makes that makes up you and your family and and the mission that you have at GCA. Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, I mentioned earlier that I uh, came here as a refugee escaping the atrocities of Laos. And, mm-hmm. and my parents, we were from an ethnic community that uh, did not have a writing, a written language system until their generation, which is like 60 years ago. Oh, wow. And, and so, so we're straight from the jungles of Laos, coming to America. Uh, everything was brand new. Uh, and so when we got to the United States, my parents, you know, not knowing the world, they they kept to they kept in within our small community of mm-hmm. of uh, ethnic community called the Hmong people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just a, a, a quick uh, fact, uh, the Olympic gold medalist, mm-hmm. she's Hmong. So she's oh, the first cool. Hmong uh, Olympian. That's awesome. Uh, in That's history. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So That's very cool. So, so, so from a small community like that. Uh, it's it's very hard to venture out of that community because if you uh, to to protect the community to keep everybody safe you stay to what you know and so uh, and so I was growing up and I thought you know maybe life is more than just our small community um, and, and it goes back to how we wrestle in in this country right our identity are we a salad bowl or are we a melting pot right and, and some people see you know, our country as a, as a salad bowl where there's lots of different, uh, very distinct communities. And then there's some people say, no, this is a big melting pot where everything is blended and we're all mixed together and so forth. Uh, and so I was trying to, you know, identify, okay, what, what, what is it for me? And, and I, I think the, 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 the truth is both are correct and, and, mm-hmm. and both are wrong at the same time, right? So <laughs> there's truth to both, both sides of that. Yeah, right. yeah. And so as a young person, I, I would have um, European-American friends mm-hmm. and I would have African-American friends. Mm-hmm. And, and my parents would say, well, who are they? And they wouldn't let me bring, I would never bring them home. Mm. Oh, I would be friends with them yeah, in school, but I, I wouldn't really bring them home. Uh, but as I got a little older, I thought, you know, there's more to this here. And, and, and so the, the first real challenge I had with cultural change was, I decided that I was going to go to a, a church that was not my family church. Mm. So my dad's an elder. My uncle's a preacher. And, and it's taboo to, to go to a church that's not part of your family. church. It was, yeah. I mean, it's a Christian church, but it was, uh, it was not the community church. And I thought, you know, I just want to find, uh, discover my own spiritual journey based upon my own terms. Uh, I, I don't want it to be based upon the upbringing that, that I, you know, I yeah. appreciate the upbringing that I had with the name Abraham, you got to go to church, right? right. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me. Adam kind of does the same thing to you. So, you know, <laughs> so, 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 but, but I wanted to find uh, my own spiritual journey and discover it for myself. And, and so in doing that there, I said, you know, I sort of realized that, you know, the world is more than just our community. And, and, and again, I love my community of, of the Hmong community, but it's more than just that. Yeah. And, and then I started thinking, you know, maybe I can date outside of our community. Mm. That, that was pretty radical because, yeah. you know, my everyone in my family, my parents have eight kids, all of them married in the Hmong community. And again, I, you know, nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I, I'm glad that they married within the community, but, but I'm the one that said, you know, maybe there's more than just that. And so I started exploring and I remember going on my first date with, uh, with an African-American lady. 
And um, first, it was scary for me, right? Because, you know, <laughs> 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 is she, yeah, is she going to rob scary, me? scary, maybe intimidating. Right. Intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think it was more intimidating. <laughs> but 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 you there's truth that you know and then there's the stereotype out there. Right. Mm, and so I, true. I, I, so true. The, the truth is that that all people are good and all people are capable of of dumb things too. And mm. and so 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 I, I went on my first date and um I said, huh, "You know what? She she's pretty interesting. You know, there's you know this, 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 there's actually people that, you know, I can connect with out, outside my own culture, outside my own race mm-hmm. that, that I can identify with. And then, um, and, and I was leading the singles ministry uh, at church also. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so part of it is to make sure that the, the, the single women are, that if they're at home on Friday, Saturday night, that maybe someone, we, so we set up different group. Uh, mm-hmm. date nights like um like uh, group date nights so that people just kind of get out of the house and instead of yeah. going to do some crazy stuff they can just come and have some good fun fellowship so, so, so that was my first experience of dating outside of my culture in fact in my culture you don't really date you 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 uh you meet someone you go and you date the parents you go and talk to the parents and the parents approve you then you can ask for her hand in marriage and if you do if you do see her, you you do it secretly, but not openly in a, in a public date or something like that. So, so I remember uh, finally, um, and, and I wasn't ready to fall in love or anything like that. You know, I, right. I was dating for the purpose of dating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day, um, I was at a church, and it was midweek service, and the doors opened wide. I was having a conversation; the doors opened wide, okay. and in walked this lady. African American lady, and there was a light behind her. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And I and it. everything went into slow motion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, like, what's going on? And I saw her coming in in slow motion, and it was like maybe two seconds, but right. it felt like two minutes. And then everything went back to normal speed again. And because I was talking to somebody in front of me, and behind yeah. that person was the light, the door, that person nice. being, walking in. But in the in in the fellowship, you know, as we started having fellowship, and we ran into each other, and I said, "Hey, you're you're new here. I, I, you know, this is my first time seeing you here." I said, well, "Welcome to our ministry." Yeah. And she said, "Yeah, it's my first time here," uh, and we started talking. And so about a, a month later, I took her on a date. Nice. And the magic continued. It started oh. off. Uh, Love it. You know, People, people, people say love at first sight. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it was true for me. Um, mm-hmm. And nice. so the next time we actually went on a date and, I, and she asked me about my culture and about who I am. And she, I thought, wow, she really has an interest in who I am uh, and what I'm about and my culture, my community and so forth. And, and so we just fell in love. And so, but the hard thing came when I went to um, tell my parents that I wanted to marry her. Mm. And uh, my parents said, have you thought about it? Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, she's, she's not of our community. She's not long. Uh, and, I, and, and, and this is where you have to become your own person. Mm. And, and I told my parents, you know, I, I honor you. I respect you. And, and I'm not coming. Uh, I said in a very gentle, uh, respectful way. 
But I said, I'm not coming to ask for permission. I'm coming to honor you by telling you what my desires are. Mm. And, and I want to marry her. Uh, and so, so they said, well, sleep long on it before you make your final decision. And, uh, and so, and so, but it was hard to, to face my parents knowing that they want something totally different and everything inside of me wants to make my parents proud. But, um, but to make them proud means I have to marry in the culture. And so I had to listen to my own voice. I had to listen to, uh, to what my own destiny is about. Um, but from that, my parents became better people because they never, a, a black person has never walked into their home. Mm. Um, they, they have never uh, integrated with anybody outside of their own community. And, and, and I remember the first time that I saw that my parents were really, that have really changed. Uh, you know, there was some plumbing issues at the house in my, um, uh, I took a friend of mine who's African-American, I took him to the house. He's a plumber and he fixed it. You know, uh, he dig that big old ditch, you know, spent four hours digging a ditch, fixing the pipe in the front yard. Mm. And afterwards he just told my parents, say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's you know, I'm a friend of Abe and uh, it's just an honor to serve you guys. Mm. And, and my parents interacted in a meaningful way with somebody outside of our community for that first mm-hmm. time there. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember the distinct change I saw was a few months later, my dad was about to go fishing. Mm-hmm. And he said, Abe, your friend, Mike, do you think he wants to go fishing with me? Mm-hmm. Nice. He's never invited anybody outside of the Hmong community to go f- do anything with them like that. Yeah. And so, and so, so, and so through, overcoming the challenges the threat of maybe being disowned by my own parents because i was going to marry outside the race um it led to them growing as as individuals as well nice yeah that's awesome that's awesome i love it i love it i think we all need to do a little bit more of that is stepping Mm -hmm. out and trying to find affinities and trying to connect with people that we normally or might at first glance think that we don't have anything in common with them. I think that we all as, as a human race realize that we have more in common than, than we don't have in common. So just overcoming just how we look differently, which I often appreciate. I mean, I appreciate, you know, the beauty that is America and makes up, you know, this collective of different types of people, but not everybody always sees it that way. Unfortunately not. And that's a huge disappointment. So, but that's a wonderful story. I absolutely love that. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah, Abe, Abe, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Abe. You can keep up with Abraham and his work at www.govassociation.org or at www.blockchainchamber.org. Be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn at Chloe Reed and Adam Moore and Abraham. If you enjoy this episode, please check out our previous episodes and stay tuned for next time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, Adam, Chloe, hey, thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Absolutely. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.